Hello, and welcome to the Quadcast, brought to you by the Mary Christie Foundation, a thought leadership organization dedicated to the behavioral health and well-being of teens and young adults. We have a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, the executive director of the Mary Christie Foundation and the host of the Quadcast. We are so excited to have on our show today President Lee Pelton of Emerson College in Boston. President Pelton, welcome to the Quadcast. It's a real pleasure to be here. I just wondered if you could give us a description of Emerson. It's such a terrific place, particularly for our listeners who aren't in Boston. Well, Emerson is a medium-sized college located in downtown Boston with a focus on liberal arts, arts, and communication. I describe us as MIT for the other side of the brain. Our students, like engineering students, come to us. They know exactly what they want to do. They've been doing it since they were eight years old. In some respects, it's like applying to a graduate school because you apply to a department. And unlike a liberal arts college, you know your major from the day you begin rather than a term and a half or two full years later. We talked a couple of years ago about college student mental health, uh, particularly as it relates to your students who are are so incredibly talented and, and passionate. And in fact, you have been a real advocate for college student mental health and have been a great participant in our work at the Mary Christie Foundation. So thank you for that. But the impact of 2020 on student mental health just sort of blows everything to a new level, right? From the pandemic to the painful political climate to the traumatic examples of persistent racism that are still so raw. You know, we're seeing it in the data. I'm sure you saw this. The latest Healthy Minds data show that the prevalence of depression among college students, which was already disturbingly high, has really increased since last year at this time. So I guess my first question is, what are you most concerned about in terms of your students' mental health and What should higher education be thinking about in terms of addressing these issues? Well, it's clear that the triple pandemic of COVID-19, economic devastation, and the very public exposure of the structural and systemic racial inequities and barriers that have kept some of our students and, of course, some of our citizens in the nation from fully participating in American democracy has had a profound and jarring effect on our students who exhibit in varying degrees enormous mental fatigue, frustration, a sense of isolation, especially for students who are studying remotely by themselves, uh, sometimes in very unfavorable conditions and circumstances. And of course, as you've noted, depression. So colleges and universities need to be, and I hope that we are, more attentive to our students, understanding that their needs are really very acute and urgent. What we've done at Emerson is we've consolidated our Center for Health and Wellness and Counseling and Psychological Services into a integrated counseling health and wellness center. We're doing this really in the wake of the JED Healthy Campus Project coming to campus and highlighting the need to provide greater attention to student health and well-being and provide a robust and intentional college-wide program. And the circumstances of the current pandemic reinforce the need, I think as we all know, for colleges to think more broadly, intentionally, 
and holistically about the health and well-being of not only students, but the entire college community. So clearly colleges like Emerson have been thinking about this, right, in terms of COVID-19 and mental health and, as you say, what's going on in society in general. And I, I, I should give a shout out to, you've got great leadership over there with with Jim Hobby, your, your VP of Campus Life. And I know he's done some great work consolidating all of the services as you're describing, including wellness services. And I, I wanted just to talk a little bit about that because, you know, data are showing that what students are reporting has a lot to do, as you say, with isolation and a, and a decrease in their sense of belonging. I mean, this is not just a service delivery issue. I mean, this is really about how colleges can create environments for positive well-being and belonging. And would you say that's correct? That's true. And I think we should also recognize that these issues disproportionately impacts certain segments of our student population. Students from lower income populations will have less access to some of the resources that other students will have. I know, for instance, that some students from certain populations don't like to turn on the video in their Zoom class because they don't want other students to see the conditions, you know, in which they live. And so that's a, you know, that's a very different approach to being educated than someone from, you know, a place of privilege. You're right about that. And it it seems to me, you know, we're still in it. So it's hard to t- sort of take a historical view, but the pandemic certainly has shined a light on so many inequities when you think about student affairs issues, the income disparities, particularly you're just referring to. So talk a little bit about that, Lee, in terms of the work that we still have to do going forward that was already there about some pretty vast student inequities, which is a is a tough thing to get at as a college president, I know, has a bit to do with mental health, of course, but also just to do with the way students arrive on campus in very, very unequal ways, correct? Well, absolutely, they do. I'll give you an example of what we've done at Emerson with respect to health and wellness, that we've reallocated our existing resources so that we've increased substantially the counseling resources available to students. There are more clinical hours available over the summer term. We have some students here in the summer. We've increased hours assigned to case management and support for students seeking services off campus. Let's not forget the students who are off campus. We've increased our allocation to the multicultural specialists, which is part of what we're talking about here, to support and provide additional support to students of color. And over the last four years, we've more than tripled our counseling, health, and wellness resources. And I'm happy to report that half of our current counseling staff uh, are people of color. So these are the kinds of efforts. I mean, this is one effort, but these are the kinds of efforts that we need to make in this area, understanding that the impact of the triple pandemic that I referred to earlier disproportionately impacts certain populations in our student body. Fifteen years ago, it would maybe seem unusual to hear a college president talk so specifically about the mental health services that are available and, and how students are using them. So it really does sort of speak to 
A, your own commitment to it, but also how the issue of college student mental health has certainly risen up in the priorities of college presidents. And I'll refer to the Pulse survey you I'm sure also saw that came out this week from the American Council of Education that showed that nearly 70% of presidents identified student mental health as among their most pressing issues. So I think all that is certainly good news. Speaking of presidents, I think that you're a great example of one that is communicates frequently with students and sets a tone around culture on your on your campus. And I'd like to talk specifically about that, the role of presidents in that, and the role of you personally as a president when we think about this summer and the the tragic killings of Black Americans at the hands of police. So I'd like to get your thoughts specifically about racism and the role of higher education. Again, as I alluded to, your letter to your community after the killing of George Floyd was so profound, you know, so powerful and so authentic, given your own experience. And you, you ended by saying, what are we going to do? That's the real question. So I'm going to turn that to you. What should higher education be doing first to address the racial trauma experienced by their black students, which again is 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 different than all of what we've been talking about so far. And also you know, really to bring about the social justice we so desperately need in this country. Big questions, I know, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, the first is a deep understanding and an acknowledgement of these troubling issues. You know, I, my, I wrote a letter to my community. It actually there were seven to eight million people around the globe that had access to it. So it struck a chord. And I talked about my own experiences and encounters with racism, some of it involving police, some of it not. And I wanted to make visible what was invisible. That is to say, I wanted everyone to understand that what happened to George Floyd which was a galvanizing moment. It's, it was not a new was not a new event, but it was a galvanizing moment. That in some respects, there are people like myself, people in power, privilege, you know, black men and women, who have also suffered, you know, these racial encounters and, and indignities. George Floyd's death came about because of three reasons. One is he was invisible to policeman Chauvin, who put his knee on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds until he cried out for his mama and said he couldn't breathe. And he kept his knee on his neck, if you recall, for several minutes after George Floyd had lost consciousness. He was able to do that because he was invisible. He wasn't human. And there was something embedded in that officer, and really in this country, that's structural and systemic, that made him think that this was okay. But what I sought to do was to lift up this event as an example of the structural and systemic racism that has long plagued our, plagued our country. And, and I want to make an important distinction here between what we refer to as racism and bigotry, which are individual acts, and structural and systemic racism, which are those structures that are built into our culture, our society, our legal system that allow racism to persist, recognizing that they intersect with other issues, with, you know, 
women's uh, struggles for rights with LGBTQ and, you know, and so on and so on and so forth. So, but those are two important distinctions. And so I, to get to the answer to your question is, what can you do? What can all of us do? First of all, is come to terms with this issue and seek to understand it. And you understand it by understanding the history of structural racism in this country going back now 401 years, beginning in 1619 when the first slaves were brought to this country. You know, I received thousands of emails and letters, and a lot of them stand out. And and what was particularly memorable was a man, white man, probably in his 80s, who essentially said, you know, I got it. I get it. I understand it now. Your letter made me understand it. And so he showed me, you know, he he had set up a GoFund page for Black Lives Matter. That is fantastic. It was an incredibly powerful letter. I wanted to ask you about the impact of the killing of George Floyd in this past summer on Black students and specifically what responsibility their colleges have with really trying to address some of that really unique experience and trauma that they're going through. I I had the pleasure of speaking to a number of Black student athletes about these issues at Pitt. And one young man who was a track and field star said, when I saw the video, all I could think about was my brother, my father, my uncle. It could have been any of us. And his point was he experienced it so much differently than so many of his peers. And I'm just wondering if you think schools are recognizing that difference and and what you're seeing around the country with your peers about some of the best practices of, of addressing that, because it's it's such a big issue for Black uh, college students. Well, as I said, it was a galvanizing moment, and not just for students of color, but for white students as well. If you recall the many protests and rallies that we had this summer, they were multicultural and multiracial, which I found to be positive. It was wonderful that students and young people were able to speak up and speak out and also tell their stories. So the colleges and universities have been galvanized as well. On the other hand, this is not new. (laughs) But I think Nell Painter, the wonderful historian, says that America has an amnesia problem. That is to say that we have these moments and they're ephemeral. And then we go on and we have another moment, (laughs) another galvanizing moment. And so the question is, what are we going to do on colleges and universities? And and what I've concluded is that how we normally approach these issues, that that script will not work because we've used it over and over and over again. And we still hear the same complaints from students from one generation to the next. And the complaint can be boiled down to this. I do not have a sense of belonging at this college. I understand that you've, you know, Mr. President and Mr. Dean and Vice President, Ms. Dean and Ms. President, you've done all the things that you're, you, you know, that you're supposed to do in, in terms of hiring faculty of color, uh, increasing the presence of students of color on campus. You've beefed up the counseling services. You've got culturally competent pedagogy and all of that. But 
there's my experience hasn't changed. And so what we're uh, looking at doing at Emerson is to take a really deep, honest uh, appraisal of our college culture to try to understand how it could be that after, you know, it's my ninth year here at Emerson, after having put into place so many different measures, how it could be that students, that some students still feel as outsiders, that they don't belong, that they move around in these spaces, principally white spaces, uh, with a sense of alienation. And so I'm saying all that to say this, that these issues are deeply structural and cultural. And it's not a president's problem. It's not, uh, it's not a faculty problem. It's not a student problem. It is a community problem. And the only way that we can solve this, if, if solve is the right word, but the only way that we can make substantial progress if we understand, first of all, that it is a community problem and the community must come together to figure this out because a president can't do it on her own. A dean can't do it on her own. And a student group cannot or groups cannot do that. So we have to come together as a community. So we're trying to figure out a way on our campus to engage the entire community in this issue rather than, you know, listen to demands, the administrators respond to a demand. And we keep, you know, this, this Sisyphean rock uh, that we keep rolling up the hill keeps rolling back down on us. And so we, we need to do a real deep dive into this. And so that's what we're, we're seeking to do at Emerson. I haven't, we haven't figured it all out, but I'm absolutely convinced that it, it has to start with, you know, a, a, an honest appraisal of those things in our community and in our culture that make the experiences of some of our students and faculty that doesn't allow them to fully or feel feel as if they're fully uh, participating. Wow, that was that was so instructive for others that are trying to do this. And I think a couple of things that that resonated in terms of what I've been hearing: this need to take a new examination, given what has not worked in the past, is I think one hopeful sign. So I think that's an amazing point. And the other is. I've personally found it so uplifting and so promising, and I think you alluded to this a few minutes ago, in the outrage that students of all profiles had this past summer going into the election year and how they channeled that into activism and, and voting. And I, think, and, and I think that was another good sign. There's an awful lot of work to do. But while we're on the subject of student activism, let's talk a little bit about that. That's something that we're seeing more of, maybe a resurgence we haven't seen in decades. Talk a little bit about that and why you think that's important. Well, you know, I'm often asked, is this a movement or a moment? <laughs> it's certainly a moment. It's not clear to me that it's a movement. But as you just said, I am made hopeful by the fact that the participants in this moment have been really very diverse. And for the most part, despite what one might believe, have been, you know, extraordinarily peaceful and nonviolent. One of the things that I find hopeful is that this moment has become a kind of 
training program for the future leaders of this nation. And I don't know which ones will emerge, but I, I think you will see out of this young people who become community organizers, some whom may start their own nonprofits or work at nonprofits, and some who will go on to positions in politics and government. That would certainly be a, a silver lining, wouldn't it? I, I want to stick on policy for a second and just ask you about your thoughts about, I don't know what else to call it, but this dramatic, crazy election that is now giving us a new administration. The change in administrations should bring significant change, I would think, to higher education policy, specifically those that we cover in terms of student affairs like DACA, Title IX, college affordability, international students, visas, etc. That's an awful lot of stuff, and I don't mean to throw them all at you to address, but if you were to think about what you really hope will change with the Biden administration, what 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 are you thinking? What are you most hopeful about? Well, I think I'm most, <laughs> I'm most hopeful, and a lot of us are, that we'll return to a sense of normalcy. Yes. Agreed. Less chaos in Washington and, and elsewhere. You know, with respect to immigration, you know, Biden, is, you know, he's got this issue of the southern border and, and immigrants seeking asylums, and he's going to take on that issue, that he would reverse Trump's uh, policies that separate families and have created spikes in deportation, that he would end a ban on travel from certain majority Muslim countries, and of course, that he would protect DACA students. And uh, all of those, uh, including the last one, will be heavy lifts for him. The, you know, the two big issues for colleges and universities still is access and affordability. It would be wonderful if we could have the federal government and states providing more resources to colleges and universities so that we could increase both of those. The price and the cost, which is the net price, of colleges and universities have risen dramatically. And it's made education at some of the places out of reach for middle class and certainly other economic standings from having access to colleges and universities. So I think we need, it would be a federal plan that would uh, help us make colleges and universities more accessible to a larger group of college-going students. Mm, agreed. There's an awful lot to think about, and as I said, an, an awful lot to do. Speaking of policy impact, this is actually my last question, even though I'd love to keep you all day. I know you have a few things to do. My last question, though, is about your new role. So you'll be moving on from Emerson at the end of this year to join the Boston Foundation as its president. Talk about policy impact. It is certainly one of the premier community foundations in the country and is done an amazing, amazing job here in the greater Boston area. So you'll be in a position to actually impact policy for children and teens and young adults, not just college students. So my question is, will the emotional and behavioral health of, of this population group still be a priority for you in your, in your new position? Oh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, every aspect of their health. There are more Americans, and this really translates into children who go hungry each day than they were eight months ago. In fact, that number has tripled. Obviously, that is a detriment, not only to their physical health, but also their mental health. We are going to reach out with intention, intentionality to the neighborhoods in Boston. We're going to listen and learn and uh, where we can help to improve lives, particularly the lives of young people and strengthen communities. And so we're, and we're going to do this through the equity lens, 
both social equity and racial. So yes, that's very much on our list. You know, the, the Boston Foundation is supported by a three-legged stool. It's a grant maker and it supports nonprofits throughout the region. It has a $1.3 billion assets, most of these in the, what's called these donor-advised funds. And so we want to partner with our donors to increase the impact of their philanthropy. And then the Boston Foundation is a civic leader in terms of its research, its ability to convene, collaborate on key issues facing the community. But what it has that's unlike most community foundations is that it has, and it had from the beginning, because it's one of the oldest community foundations in the nation, a permanent fund. And this permanent fund allows the Boston Foundation to make discretionary gifts out of that fund. That fund is almost a, a half a billion dollars. And so we will use the permanent fund, as we always have, to change and transform the lives of people not only in Boston, but beyond. That is outstanding. Lee Pelton, president of Emerson College and incoming president of the Boston Foundation. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be in your company. Thank you. Take care. Take care. This has been The Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Foundation. To learn more about our work, go to marychristiefoundation.org, where you can sign up for our other programs, the MC Feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review in your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. 